I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll look at a couple scriptures this evening as we continue looking at our doctrine of the church. As you recall, last week we began looking at the marks of the church. And if you recall, there are three distinguishing marks of the church, three features that distinguish, as the Belgic Confession puts it, a true church from a false church. Of course, we looked at the first two of those last week, that of preaching, uh, faithful preaching, and that of a faithful administration of the sacraments. But there is a third item here, that of discipline, which we will consider tonight. And I'd like us just to pay careful attention as uh, what Paul writes to Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this, and again, he's writing to Timothy as a church planner, as a pastor, telling him what he needs to do in the building up of Christ's church in this area. As for those who persist in sin, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. This is God's word. Let us go before him in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider these weighty matters of your word, we ask that you give us much illumination and wisdom as we consider the whole counsel of Scripture, that we might walk faithfully in all that you command us to believe and all that you command us to do for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What's interesting to see when we look at the marks of the church, and again, uh, within our uh, uh, Scripture, there are three distinguishing features of a true church uh, proper preaching, uh, faithful preaching, faithful administration, the sacraments, and uh, church discipline. Uh, all three of these ordinances are designed for our growth. I think it's something that reminds us that God cares about our spiritual growth even more than we care about our spiritual growth. This is what the church is about. This is, uh, we're not gathering here on a Sunday morning or evening to hear uh, a couple nice songs that remind us of our childhood and then to hear a nice fuzzy message and then to go uh, back and be about our business for the week. The task of the church is holiness, a holiness without which, Scripture tells us, no man may see the Lord. It's grounded in a righteousness that is received by faith alone, and yet there is the call, the imperative for believers, having been declared righteous, to grow and to walk in that righteousness which they have been justified, in which they have been declared. So one of my old professors in seminary used to say, uh, the repeated emphasis we see in the New Testament is this, be what you are. You've been declared to be righteous, now you're called to walk in that righteousness. You're justified, and that justification is a, is a legal act, it's received by faith alone, but now with the task of sanctification is growing into that new set of clothes that you have been given. But it leaves us with a kind of practical question, I think. What happens when we don't want to grow? And that's why church discipline is so important. This is the final mark. And, uh, you know, on, on the surface, the, talking about church discipline sounds rather, rather mean, uh, rather frumpy. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like something that uh, maybe a cult might talk about. Um, how would any of us ever, ever get together and, and with a big smile on our face talk about the beauty of church discipline? 
And yet that's what we're doing tonight. We're talking about the discipline of the church. I think on closer inspection, when we think about it, discipline is not a bad thing. In fact, I'd like to make the suggestion that discipline is, in fact, a great good. And, and we recognize this throughout the course of our daily lives with everything else. Parents, I want you to think about your kids. Why is it that you discipline your children? Is so that you can uh, feel good that, that, that now that you have somebody to control under your thumb, as if uh, you, 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 you get your kicks out of some type of power trip? Is it because you enjoy making your children suffer? I think for any, any good parent, they say, no, that's, that's not why we're disciplining our children. You discipline your children because you love them. You, know, you, you, you tell them, don't put your hand on the stove because you don't want them to get burned. Even if that means you have to put them in time out. And they're very upset with you about it, thinking you, that you're some type of tyrant or dictator. You're really enacting discipline to mold and to shape them that they might learn to walk in uh, a, a, a proper path and not do things that would cause them harm. It's one of the things that we see throughout Scripture. Discipline is a sign of God's favor. It's not a sign of his disfavor. You see this repeated contrast between the nations in the Scriptures and the church. You think of Romans chapter 1, for instance. What, what's the great uh, judgment that, is, uh, that the nations undergo in Romans 1? It's repeated three times in that chapter. It's that the Lord hands them over to their own sins. Those who exchange the truth of God for a lie, the, the knowledge of the Creator in exchange for these created things, those who invert the created order, uh, the, 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 the worst thing that could ever happen to any of us is if the Lord says, you know what? Fine. Have at it. Have at your own sin. It shows that the wrath of God is coming against those who persist in such things. So a sign of God's favor is for those whom the Lord interposes and brings harsh rebuke and correction. It's a sign of His love. It says you are going down the wrong path. If you do not avert your ways, you will perish for all eternity. Psalm 94, 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline. Discipline, we see elsewhere, is a badge of sonship. Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Moses is giving one of his final three farewell sermons before he dies, before Israel passes into the promised land. Moses recounts Israel's history 40 years in the desert. And says this, thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his sons. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. It's harsh. Very harsh. And yet, hard as it is, painful as it is, it is a sign of the Lord's forbearance and discipline on His sons. The book of Proverbs begins in similar fashion. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Do not loathe His reproof. For the Lord reproves those whom He loves just as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. It's hard to think about that when, when the belt's coming down. Most of us probably don't think. I know I did when I was a kid. Oh, there's the belt. It's coming. It's coming. My dad really loves me. It's not what we're thinking. We're thinking... 
what can I do to get out of this from ever happening again? The correction is good. It's for our good. Hebrews 12 reiterates the same thing, citing Proverbs. As he speaks to a church that is weary in the midst of trial and affliction, the Lord disciplines his sons. In fact, he goes so far as to say, here's the implication, if you're not being disciplined, you are an illegitimate child. Further, we find in Proverbs that discipline is designed to protect you. Proverbs 6 says this, the reproofs of discipline, they are the way of life. It is to preserve you from the adulteress. Why is it that we're giving you the curfew, so to speak, the Lord says? It's because the adulteress and her path it leads to the path of death. It might not sound like fun because you have, you're being kept on a short leash, so to speak. But this is designed to defend and to protect you even when you don't recognize that. Discipline imparts wisdom. Proverbs 12, I love it, how it does not mince words. It says, he who hates reproof is stupid. Paul himself says discipline is a means of God's salvation. 1 Corinthians 11, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we might not be condemned along with the world. We speak of all, the, all these great benefits that we have by belonging to Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification. Perhaps we should add alongside that list of benefits, the rod and the staff, that they comfort us. It shows that the Lord is ever near us, that He is with His people. We can talk about the different types of discipline. You think of how the Lord disciplines His people in, his, in our daily providence. We're reminded in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Even if nobody else sees what you're doing, you will reap that reward for good or for ill. Proverbs 5, the wicked die for lack of discipline. They lay a snare for others, and they are hoisted on their own petard. It's kind of a modern uh, paraphrase. It's the bomb maker who accidentally sets off his own bomb. That's the image that's being displayed here. Remember Haman. Here is a guy in the book of Esther who, who builds the gallows to try to have Mordecai he connives to have Mordecai and the rest of the Jews put to death, and yet how does Esther end? Haman ends up being the one at the end of the noose, the recipient of his own schemes. The Lord deals harshly with people in his own providence. We even see the type of discipline in uh, the family. It's one of the great responsibilities of parenting. When I say great, I mean weighty. Probably it's not your most enjoyable thing you, you, you do as a parent, sending your kid to time out. And it's a difficult path to walk, to discipline your kids without exasperating them. That's what the New Testament, it's what Peter says. Discipline your sons, but, but don't exasperate them. Meaning that there, there has to be some type of wisdom when it comes to how you discipline your children. It takes great skill. What we need to notice is we aren't actually talking about just the broad, kind of generic, providential types of discipline that the Lord enacts. We're talking about discipline as it relates to the church itself. And the question we ask is, a church a true church? And one of the litmus tests is, does it practice consistent church discipline? What do we mean by ecclesiastical discipline? That's the question that we have before us this evening. 
More broadly, we could speak of discipleship. Uh, well, uh, first, I, I, let me say this. There is no discipleship without discipline. There is no discipline without discipleship. That's, that's really at root what it means. It is a practice of training and instructing the people of God in the way they should go. Primarily, this is accomplished, you know, you, as soon as you think church discipline, you might be thinking excommunication, these really awkward meetings after church services, things like that. But it actually starts long before that. Church discipline, more generally speaking, is accomplished primarily through the preaching of the word. What Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, there's a positive and negative aspects to Scripture, which is the basis for true biblical preaching, is preaching the Word of God. Christ himself says that, as we saw last week, preaching consists in two things. What? A proclamation of the death and resurrection of Christ and the necessity that, the repent, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in Christ's name, beginning at Jerusalem and going to the furthest ends of the earth. In other words, a proclamation of Christ and a proclamation of conformity to him. How do you proclaim being conformed to Christ? Well, there are a series of instructions that by the power of the Spirit under the new covenant, you are to walk in this particular direction. Don't go this way, go this way. That's what Paul means in 2 Timothy 3 when he talks about the various uses of Scripture. Positive instruction, negative reproof. Don't go this way, walk in this direction. Consider our very own liturgy in the mornings. One of the first things we have on the docket is the reading of the law always dealing with some facet of a command found in Scripture. It might be the Ten Commandments. It might be some other portion of Scripture as well. It is a time that is designed for self-reflection and self-correction so that when we hear the reading of the law, our hearts are struck and we go, ah, oh, yeah, I'm still a sinner. And I need, I need to grow. Lord, forgive me. Help me by the power of your Spirit to walk in your ways. A number of years ago, uh, I was filling the pulpit at another church out in the Midwest and uh, leading the whole service, and I wasn't doing anything fancy. It came time to the, the Old Testament Scripture reading, and I read uh, the Ten Commandments. I don't even remember what I was preaching that night. It, it wasn't the Ten Commandments. I think it was somewhere from First Peter. But I remember as we were reading... They made it to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a guy in the congregation who gave this audible groan. Simply by reading the word, the Spirit convicted him. A man who was living in gross, devious sin for years. He hadn't been found out. Nobody had, had caught him. And yet through the ministry of the word, the Spirit convicted him. And he approached his wife and told her the things that he had been doing for years. And he came forward to meet with the elders. He's like, I, I have sinned very grievously, habitually, for years. So what we mean when we say that the Spirit works through the ordinary means of grace. That is, an, that is a practice of what we call church discipline. And that's where it begins. 
So the, the general call, a proclamation of sin and salvation in Christ. Discipline is part of the shepherd's task. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, for instance, uh, the Lord himself, uh, through the prophet, chastises uh, the, the under-shepherds, the elders of Israel, for failing to do their job. And in that process, the Lord delineates what the purpose of a real shepherd, a real elder, ought to be. He does so by describing what the good shepherd would come to do, to seek the lost, to bring back the straying, to bind up the injured, and even to destroy the fat and the strong. In other words, language for those who have been preying upon the weak. As we read last week in Acts 20, Paul says to the church of Ephesus as he's about to leave, pay careful attention to yourselves and to Christ's flocks. Christ's flock, he says to the elders of Ephesus. Why? Because the wolves are coming. Men from among you who will twist words and will draw disciples away from you. I have a friend of mine who a number of years ago um, had um, been elected to be an elder, uh, an elder of, of the church that he was a member of. A faithful elder, good guy. And the night that he came in to uh, be examined by uh, the session, they asked him. Uh, they said, what do you think the, the, the task of an elder is? He says, it's simple. An elder's job is to do, do two things. It is to feed the sheep and to hunt the wolves. There is an aspect of protecting the people of God, and that protection comes through church discipline. Right? We don't walk in with certain ID badges that says Charles Williams, wolf in sheep's clothing. Really, it'd be really awkward if I had that. You should probably find a new pastor if, if that was the case. We don't have those ID badges. We don't have a special set of, uh, 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 of like 3D glasses where I can look at each and every person's heart and go, ah, you're regenerate, you're reprobate, you're regenerate. You know, it's just not, it'd make my job a lot easier maybe perhaps a little bit more awkward. Rather, what are you supposed to do? It's by, your, by their fruits you will know them. So it's, it's the task of the church, particularly it's the task of, of the elders, to examine fruit and say, oh, it doesn't look you are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You might have given a profession of Christ, but do you really possess Him? Right now there certain, seems to be a certain dissonance uh, with how you are acting. It's time to amend your ways. Or we have to act accordingly. As we see in Proverbs, it is, it is the wise man who takes the heat of reproof, and he will repent. And it is the fool who will not give ear to wisdom. But we find that discipline comes not just through preaching. It would be really great if I came up every Sunday and simply preached the word and everybody went, ah, yep, I'm a sinner, there's my Savior, let me go and correct everything right away. That's not how human nature works, is it? Sometimes we need another nudge. Uh, for those of you who are parents, don't you wish when your kids were younger, if you just said, hey, stop it, and they went, yes, sir, daddy, we'll do it again. It would make life so much easier. But that's just not the way human nature works. Discipline at its root comes as a component of preaching, but Christ himself has actually initiated a process of discipline for those who refuse to heed those general, that general counsel that comes from the word. 
Mark of the true church is that a church practices this ecclesiastical discipline when it is necessary. And there are two major, uh, two critical passages that deal with this. We're going to look at both of them rather, I guess, rather briefly. Um, Well, maybe not briefly. If we have to continue this another week, that's fine. We're in no rush, right? But Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Let's look first at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. What's interesting is Christ uh, himself only uses the, the, the term church twice as recorded in Scripture. This is one of those two times. They're both used in the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. First in Matthew, I believe Matthew 15 or 16, the second time here in Matthew 18. Jesus says this, he's addressing the church. Remember, remember our earlier our, uh, um, definition, what is the church? It's the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. Jesus says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen to him, take one or two along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promises to build his church. And now here in Matthew 18, Jesus addresses the church and what happens as that church continues to grow. It's an ordinance for the church to reckon with unrepentant sin. It means you don't have to to sit around and just pretend like everything is okay. There's a process for dealing with it. And when we think about it, it really makes sense. Again, if, we, if the church is defined as, as Christ's kingdom on earth, if Christ is a king, and if Christ as king has a kingdom, and those kingdom have, that kingdom has laws, then there is a process to deal with those who refuse to abide by those laws in the kingdom of Christ those who break those laws with a high hand. Note the process. I'm going to walk through this very carefully. This is dealing primarily with private sins. Note what it says here. If a brother sins against you, what do you do? Do you blog about it? Tell everybody in the church right away? Send up smoke signals? Carrier pigeon? Purchase one of those uh, airplanes with the big, uh, uh, the big flag you know, with the signs at the end? Billy Bob did this to me. Now I want the whole world to know. You think of Seinfeld, the, the Festivus, the airing of grievances. Is that what you do? No, that it, Jesus says what you're to do first. You are to the one, you're the one who is to take the initiative. You're to go to your brother privately, one-on-one. And I think this reminds us of the stated goal of discipline. Some of us can get so angry when we're hurt, and it's okay to be angry. But I think some of us might go, ah, well, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to treat Matthew 18 like a series of checkboxes so I can target this person. That's not the manner and the attitude that Christ says is involved here. Why are you to approach them in private in hopes that you, the two of y'all, would be reconciled? That is the great hope. A lot to tell us about our own heart as we follow this practice, why are we engaging this person in private? 
Are we doing it just to fill off, to, to, to check off the, the little tick box so we can move to the next stage, so we can publicly humiliate him, so we could get our pound of flesh? Are we truly seeking to see that brother restored? Are we being vindictive? Are we trying to pursue discipline out of spite? Do we have a real sense to see this brother restored? In fact, Jesus will take this a step further in Matthew chapter 5. For those of you ladies who have been uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount, you know this uh, quite well. Jesus says, you know, you're about to go drop off your offering uh, at the church, and then you remember, oh, some, somebody has something against me. It's not simply, oh, I'm about to drop off my, my tithe and offering, and I remember I've got something against somebody else. No, it's, it's, the, the, inver- it's the, the opposite. Jesus says, you remember somebody has something against you. What are you supposed to do? Ah, oh, it's on them. <laughs> Let them sort it out. No, Jesus says, you know, before you even drop off your offering, you approach that person and try to make right. In other words, in the kingdom of Christ, there is a proactiveness to pursuing reconciliation if at all possible. That there is no excuse for trying to let somebody else deal with the manner of reconciliation. It reminds us of the nature of sin. Sometimes we're supposed to go to somebody else, especially you know, what Jesus says here, go to somebody, if, if, they've, if they've sinned against you, go to them. You know what might be the case? They might not realize that they've sinned against you. They might just be a total knucklehead. It might be a total misunderstanding. They might be oblivious to it. The fact of the matter is, when we read Scripture, we find that that's really what sin is, isn't it? It's obliviousness. The Bible uses a different word. It's hard-heartedness. But there is a a certain deafness uh, to the commands of Scripture. And the only way they're going to know that they've done wrong is if you point it out to them from Scripture and saying, hey, look, this, this is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak the truth to one another in love, seeking to build up. Um, uh, Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews 10, either 10 or 12, that you're to provoke one another to good works. You're to irritate them until they finally start doing good. So what we're supposed to do. Sin is, uh, there's an encrusting on the heart. There's a self-deceptiveness that comes with the heart. And so part of our task is to remind people with Scripture, oh, perhaps this isn't, you're not doing the best thing. You've really hurt me by what you've done. And, and here are the biblical qualifications. It's not simply, oh, you know, I was, a fair, uh, you know, I was offended by the color of your sweater last week. Uh, you, the, the goal is to show people from Scripture. We, we think, you know, there's been, there's been a real breach here. It also reminds us that part of the Christian faith is, is not saying, you know, pretending like everything is okay. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? Be angry, but do not sin. It is okay to be angry when you've been sinned against. It is okay to be hurt. You shouldn't feel guilty about being angry at those things. The Lord himself is angry at sin. The wrath of God is coming against all unrighteousness, Romans 1 says. And yet the character of God is such that he, is still, he still forbears with sinners so that his kindness might lead them to repentance. And we are called to follow in that same manner. So we were called to act graciously, but this is no sloppy agape. This isn't simply a matter of, oh, I just need to, you know, uh, forget that it happened 
and not reckon with it. No, Jesus says, no, when there is a real breach in the community, sin must be reckoned with. And yet there's a proper process by which that is to be handled. So when you have been personally sinned against, that does not give you warrant to gossip and slander. You are to approach that person in private. Hopefully, that fixes the situation. But such is the nature of sin that sometimes another step is involved. What do you do next? What do you do in the process? I, I think, I, to be honest, I was talking with somebody about this today. I think it's the most, one of the most difficult things of being a Christian is being willing to forgive somebody, and yet they don't think they need to be forgiven. In fact, they don't think they've done anything wrong. Scripture is very clear. Forgiveness is contingent upon repentance, upon saying, I'm sorry. So maintaining that posture of, of being willing to forgive somebody who continually and repeatedly hurts you and say, that, that, that posturing, that disposition is presented out there. You have sinned against me. And if you repent, I am willing to forgive you. But I cannot pretend that there is not a rift between us. I think that's one of the most difficult positions and dispositions to maintain without getting encrusted and bitter. And yet that is what we as the church are called to do, to follow in Christ's step. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and yet he continued entrusting himself faithfully to the Father who does all things justly. And what is it that Christ prayed even on the cross? What? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're oblivious. So this requires a certain amount of forbearance, of, of having to absorb and take the hits, even as you move towards um, seeking uh, restoration and repentance. It's painful. I think all of us want vindication now. So it, there's a real sanctifying aspect to this. Even when we are the ones who are wronged, the Lord uses that even to sanctify our own disposition and help us to understand what it is that our Savior himself has even done for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you come to that person one-on-one, -on -one, they refuse to heed you, what do you do next? You bring one or two others. Who should you bring? Christ doesn't specify here, but I think he gives some parameters that help uh, 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 um, provide wisdom and practical uh, advice and guidance on who it is that we are to bring. If the goal is the restoration of that offender, you probably don't want to bring that person's arch nemesis. You don't want to bring somebody that, that would, that would uh, call, drive the rift even further. You want to bring a mediator. You want to bring a, uh, an impartial third party, yes, but one who can try to heal the rift. The goal is not for you to get two, two or three of your closest buddies and then try to bully or intimidate that person. The goal is a real reckoning with real wrong. And so you have to pray. Ask yourself, who is best suited to help this person come to their senses? It takes prayer and it takes wisdom. That's certainly what the elders are there for. It's certainly what your pastor is here for. In fact, I think it might be wise to include an elder or your pastor in this second step of the process because if they do not heed the counsel, then you have to go to that next step, which involves getting the pastor, uh, the session involved Hopefully they repent. 
But then it says if they don't do that, there's still yet another option. Does that mean, you, what's that third option? Is it just remain silent about it? Just pretend like it didn't exist? Nope. <laughs> no, what you do, it says, you have to bring it to the whole church. I don't have time to get into this, but, but, but building Matthew 18 on chapter Matthew 16, uh, the implication is this, that you are to bring it to the session who... Uh, the session oversees. They've been entrusted as representatives uh, to deal with these pastoral matters. And if that process, which takes time, does not uh, bear the fruit that you wanted, uh, then the time for judgment comes. Jesus makes this very clear. When it makes it to this stage, even for sins committed in private, the church has to be made aware. And the offender must be put out of the church. Notice what Jesus says here. He's, he, he doesn't mince words. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you are to treat him as an unbeliever. Because, again, we don't have the special x-ray glasses to see whether or not you're regenerate or reprobate. And so it's saying, look, if, there is, if you're not showing fruit of repentance, we have to assume you are outside the kingdom of Christ. The fancy word for that is excommunication. Think of it as um, a spirit-wrought, sanctified peer pressure. That now the church as a community gathers and says, we love you. But you have gone down a path to where if you do not amend your ways, your soul is in danger and we now have to treat you as an unbeliever. And that is a difficult conversation to have. It is painful and it is awkward, and yet we cannot skirt our duty in doing these things. Maybe just as a sidebar, I might just add here that all this implies that you are in fact a member of a church. New the New Testament assumes church membership. I'm not called to submit to the elder down the street. It says submit to your elders. It presupposes that there is a working relationship between you and those uh, 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 um, uh, that you have entrusted yourselves towards. And Jesus says you're to treat that person like a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, you're not allowed to pretend like everything is okay. This person's soul is at stake. And when you see that person, every member is obligated to call that man or that woman to repentance. It is to say, sorry, I cannot be, I cannot call you brother any longer. If you do not repent, you have nothing to expect but a certain fiery judgment and doom. It's a hard conversation, it's a radical break, but the goal is hopefully that this will shake them from their slumber. This will hopefully cause them to come to their senses. It reminds us that although the initial goal of discipline is the repentance of the offender, that is not the highest goal of church discipline. Yet another goal we find is the peace and purity of the church. If, if somebody wreaks havoc on the church, they are to be put out of the church if they do not repent. This is a voluntary association, but it, it does not mean that everybody has the right to stick around. There is a process that Christ has put into place here. The church is called to be holy, and when one of its members refuses to walk in holiness, he is to be expunged, is what Christ says. It sounds hard, but this is the same thing Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you turn with me there quite briefly, let's say maybe give me 10 more minutes. I'm sorry for going long, but this is, this is so important because it's so foreign to the evangelical mindset of today where we treat going to church like going to a movie theater. 
You show up, you watch the performance, you have some snacks, and you leave. And this runs completely antithetical to what Christ has called his church to do. And this is a distinguishing march, uh, a mark of the people of God. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has taken his father's wife. Here's a man who is sleeping with his own mother or stepmother. And you are arrogant about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A couple things to note here. Here's a man who's been caught in gross sin, and the church has done nothing about it. I have a, uh, when I was in college, I had some friends who went to a, a, another church down the road, and it was, it was well known that several of the people on uh, the music team and, and with the sound were living with their girlfriends. And yet they were on church leadership. Ah, oh, it's treated as, ah, it's, oh, it's no big deal. Paul's dealing with a particular type of sin in the church here that not even, you know, uh, you know sex craved city of Corinth approves of. Incest. Paul says, what are you doing? Why aren't you grieving? Again, this reminds us, it is okay to be angry at sin. It is okay to say, what in the world are you thinking? Why are you pretending everything is okay? Ought not you rather to mourn, Paul says to Corinth here. The peace and the purity of the church has been upended and uprooted. This ought not to be so. Again, this is why we call church discipline a mark of Christ's church. It has to happen when these things take place. The church is not a mere social club. It is an assembly of the redeemed. It is called to a life of holiness. And if one refuses to walk the road of holiness, again, there's that graciousness where we have to say, hey, look, we're all sinners. And there is, you know, every day we are called to repentance. Jesus says to pray daily, forgive us our debts. There is a reason Jesus tells us to pray that every day. Because we sin every day. And you know what? There is mercy and there is grace to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. But to sit there and to say, well, my name is on the roster so I can continue doing whatever I want. I've been reading Jeremiah Burroughs' uh, book on reconciliation uh, at night, you know, right before I go to bed, and he's a 17th century Puritan. And it's a, a commentary, essentially, on, it's like a 300-page commentary on 2 Corinthians 5.20, Be Reconciled to God. And... Uh, I'm not going to spend that much time in 2 Corinthians 5.20, but it's, it's heady, and it's worth reading. But he says, every time you sin, you, what you're effectively telling God is, I wish you were less holy than you are, because I want to continue uh, relishing in my own lusts. I would rather have me be the way that I am than have you be the way who you are. 
We are not called to be like that. The church is an assembly of the redeemed. We are called to come as we are, and yet we are not to leave as we are. We are called to holiness, to hear of our sin, to confess our sins, and to put sin to death, and to walk in newness of life. So for the one who refuses to walk that path after many repeated warnings, how many, that takes discretion, that takes wisdom, that takes a lot of tears and man hours. But finally the point has to come where if that person is unrepentant, they are to be put out of the church. Paul is adamant here. They are to be formally kicked out. It's not even wiped under the rug. What happens? He says, when you are assembled... It's a corporate act of the church in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ who is king of his church. This is a judicial sentence. It's an exercise of Christ's own power as king. With the power of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, you are to deliver him to Satan. Doesn't sound real nice. And yet, that is what the church is called to do. In other words, you are to declare that this unrepentant offender stands outside the kingdom of Christ. It is to put that person on notice that though they may try to deceive themselves by saying, ah, you know, I go to church every week, everything's fine. It is the church going, everything is not fine. And until you repent, unless you repent, you should not be surprised where you will end in eternity. So the very last thing the church can do with this individual. Now the man is left naked and exposed to the elements, so to speak. He is left open to Satan's devices. There's a real spiritual sense where he is no longer under the protection of the Spirit. Hopefully the expulsion from the community, that excommunication drives him to his senses. Again, the, the hope is for restoration. What's required? There's all this assumption. Notice what Paul says here. Why does he do this? Why? In the hope that he may be delivered on the last day. In other words, that act of excommunication doesn't mean if you've been kicked out, you're never allowed to return. Rather, there is still that promise and the hope that we are doing this for your good. This is dealing with that, that son who, who is you know, addicted to opioids, and finally you say, I have to kick you out of the house. After years of trying, I'm doing this for your own good, that you will come to your senses, and you don't know what will happen to that person. This is, in effect, what the church is doing with one of its own, saying, this is the last straw. I hope you come to your senses, that you might be saved. And with that comes... The expectation that the man is, in fact, welcomed back under one condition. And what, what condition is that? It's the same condition that we all have every day. Repentance and faith. Say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. That is all that's required. But this is to help you come. Uh, it's to help all of us. And it, it, Think what happens to Ananias and Sophia in Acts 5. The fear of the Lord falls upon the entire church. This reminds us of the seriousness of sin. Sin is not something to be laughed at. Sin is something we take seriously, just as we take salvation seriously. It's not a license. Salvation is not a license to do whatever you want. 
It is the freedom to walk in God's ways because we are no longer bound to sin. It's Romans chapter 6. And so it reminds us of the primary purpose of church discipline. There are three purposes to church discipline as we've walked our way through these two passages. The first is the hopeful uh, restoration of the offender. Secondly, uh, the peace and purity of the church. But ultimately, the chief reason we pursue church discipline is this, the vindication of Christ's honor. This is not the church of Charles Williams. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when sin threatens this church, sin has to be dealt with for the sake of Christ's honor, not my own reputation. Not the reputation of any of these elders or the deacons or any person here. It's the glory of Christ that is at stake. Christ has come to reclaim a holy bride. Discipline prepares the bride for her wedding day. Do we want this church to be a church that is spotless for the day that Christ returns? Or as you see repeatedly in the prophets, and I'm going to use strong language because it's the language you see in the Old Testament, do you want the church to continue playing the whore? That is the message of Hosea. That is the message of Isaiah. That is the message of Ezekiel. That is the message of the whole Old Testament. Discipline is designed to purify Christ's church, to make the church ready for the last day so that Christ will finally see his bride spotless in a white garment. A true church will be faithful to discipline its members, not for punitive reasons, but that we might all grow in godliness out of love for our Savior. A church that fails to discipline its members is a church that does not care for your salvation. Just as a parent who does not discipline their kids, it shows how indifferent they are to their kids. They're just more concerned about being their buddy or getting along or any of these other things. A church that does not pursue discipline is not a true church. That does not mean that you evaluate a true church on how many discipline cases it has. Again, broadly speaking, discipline begins with the public preaching of the word. The reason I talk about sin every week is because I care about you. And because I love my Savior. And that the goal is that sin must be repented of. That we might embrace Christ as our Savior. It's not fun, but it's our duty. And I'll close now with this. I asked if you give me to 615, it's 615. I asked that you give me to 616. Um, Belgic Confession, Article 29. is one of our Reformed Confessions. It asks this. As we close out this section on the, on the marks of the church... Belgian Confession says this, the marks by which the true church are known, is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, and if, the, and if church discipline is exercised in the chastening of sin. And then it says this, as for the false church, it ascribes more power and authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It will not submit itself to the yoke of Christ, neither does it administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as it thinks is proper. And it relies more upon men than upon Christ. In other words, it's concerned about you know, uh, 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 kind of unbounded church growth without actually concern for mere, uh, 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 spiritual growth. I would love to see this whole church full of... Uh, Every seat filled. But just as importantly, in fact, perhaps more importantly than seeing numerical growth for Christ's church, the, the, the goal is 
growth and maturity, that we would walk in holiness. Belgian Confession says a false church doesn't care about that, and it persecutes those who are living holily according to the word of God and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinguished from one another. In other words, like I said last week, if you're, if you're about to move out of town, uh, I'm not talking about you, know, you guys have a church where you're going, uh, but let's say you're going off to college or you're going out of town on vacation and you want to, and, or, or you know, not even just vacation, you have to move elsewhere. You're looking for a new church and you think, what should I be looking for? These are the three things. These are the three marks you should be looking for. Faithful preaching, faithful administration of the sacraments. And are they taking sin and salvation seriously? In other words, is there... Uh, is there a real understanding of discipline grounded in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Anyways, it's a lot to take in tonight, and uh, I'm sorry for taking so long, but um, like I said, Scripture says an awful lot about the doctrine of the church, and uh, we'll continue more uh, in the coming weeks. Let's stand together now as we close uh, by singing the doxology.